with that, um, I want to look at this beautiful text. I hope you're still in Isaiah chapter 61 this morning. I want to look at this beautiful text of Scripture, this one that, has, uh, that stands out to me, I, I think, as one of the most fascinating prophecies uh, within the uh, book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a book, a prophetic book, which could rightly be described as a book of hope in the midst of ruin. Uh, most of you perhaps know, but many of the prophecies that come into this book, in the book of Isaiah, many of them are uh, given to this nation Israel as they are on the brink of exile. Many of the first 30 odd so chapters are given by the prophet Isaiah as Israel is sort of feeling this impending doom of exile ever uh, approaching them and encroaching upon them. And the latter half of the book is given to this nation as they are nearing the end of exile or actually it might actually be post-exile. Post 70 years in Babylon, they are given some semblance of hope. But in either case, the message of Isaiah is a message of hope that is preceded by ruin, devastation, desolation is the word that he uses here in this chapter. But the hope that is everywhere revolving and is everywhere that Isaiah is centering on is centers on this one, as it says in verse one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. All of Isaiah's hope centers on that person, the Lord's anointed one, which we would know as the Messiah. The, word, the Hebrew word for anoint is literally where we get our word Messiah. It is suggestive of God's anointed king. They, in this day, when the prophecy was given to them, they were just hopeful that a divine king would come with the Lord's anointing and reclaim and restore Israel. We know this, of course, to be Jesus, and that's who we are celebrating today. But because of all of the the prophecies that center on this Messiah that are everywhere in this book Isaiah, many have claimed or called this book Isaiah a fifth gospel. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We also can include Isaiah in there just because everywhere it's talking about this anointed one, the Lord, this coming king who would come to the Lord's people. In fact, early church father Jerome, he said this, I will propose that Isaiah is not only a prophet, but also an evangelist. (laughs) Because everywhere, all these pages, all of these prophecies are pointed towards one person, pointed towards one figure. It makes Isaiah a very important prophetic book. In fact, it's the most referenced out of all of the prophecies. If you go to the New Testament, there are some, I think, 600 odd allusions or references to the book of Isaiah in the New Testament. Jesus himself understood his ministry, his very ministry, as he was stepping out into his public ministry in Galilee as a fulfillment of the book of Isaiah. It's, in fact, you may have really uh, uh, felt these words and remembered them. These are the exact words that make up Jesus' sermon. It, go there. Go to Luke chapter 4 really quick. It's fascinating to me to see what Jesus does. He has been baptized by John the Baptist in sort of this first declaration of public ministry. Notice what he does. Luke 4 verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, it says... Where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And notice it says, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes, excuse me, in the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. You have to know that the proper teaching position of one in a synagogue in this first century was to sit down. They would read the book and then they would sit, as was the custom was. And he was the teacher. He was the authority. They were looking to him for teaching. And in fact, he gives them a message that is perhaps so unlike anything that they were ever expecting to hear in a synagogue that day. They were familiar with the text. They're familiar with this hopeful prophecy of this coming Messiah. And then listen to Jesus' words. Today, right now, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I just imagine the faces of the people. They had heard this message probably many times. They had heard this scroll opened. They had heard the synagogue attendant read from it. And yet this guy, this teacher, he says it's fulfilled right now. I am the fulfillment of all of your longings, all of your hopefulness. It's fulfilled right in front of you. It's no wonder why they wanted to kill him because they weren't expecting that. They ran him out of the city, as we know, and they they tried to throw him off a cliff. And all of the rest of the history uh, sort of ensues. Jesus understood himself. To be the king that was promised back in Isaiah. The king that would bring good news to broken hearted people. The, the king who would bring hope into ruin. This is the message of the Messiah. It's a message of hope. And I think there's three quick things that I want to go through in this chapter back in Isaiah 61. Sort of stages of hope. Stages, by that I mean, they escalate. How do we have real, tangible hope in the midst of ruin? This is something that the people of Israel likely were questioning themselves as they were stepping out of 70 years of exile in an enemy nation. And yet here, the prophet Isaiah gives them such boundless hope that comes through three things quickly. First, we have to recognize the bad things. Recognize the bad things. Look at verses 1 through 7 again. Notice all of the dreadful descriptions of Israel's condition. The Lord, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. He goes on to talk about how they were in ruins, in desolations. They were in hardship. They were in the midst of dreadful, ruinous state. uh, All of their conditions look so grim. Looks so dire. Nothing at all in the way of hopeful. They are bound. They are captive. They are poor. And these are not just physical realities. These are also indicative of their heart's attitude. This is indicative of their spiritual realities too. They are poor spiritually. They are broken hearted spiritually. They are cast off and captive spiritually along with being exiles in this land. They've been dislodged. 
The entire nation of Israel is reeling from 70 years of captivity. This condition doesn't give them much hope. Actually, it causes them perhaps to be despairing. That there's no way this can ever be repaired. There's no way this can be fixed. There's no way this can ever be restored. I think, too, that all of this broken hardness stems from what perhaps some, some in that day might have remembered. They might have remembered that God had made a covenant with them. That there would be a king on the throne of David forever. And yet, that's not a reality. It seems as though the enemy is triumphant. That God's words weren't true. There's nothing left of all of those former things. All those past promises. All of those things seem entirely forgotten. Israel was incapable of saving herself. No, they couldn't do any sort of building project to restore themselves to glory. I think they understood this nation. They understood these bad things, perhaps very well, perhaps too well. They were perhaps too aware of how bad things had gotten. But I think such is what primed them to hear Isaiah's message. Such is what made them so ready to hear the hopefulness that Isaiah wanted to give to them. And I think the same is true for us. That we too have to recognize the bad things before the good things can ever come and grip us. Christmas has a way of doing this. Perhaps you can relate to this. You don't have to raise your hands. But Christmas for me sometimes has a way of of bringing all sorts of shortcomings to mind. Things that we, we don't often like to talk about. Things that we don't often like to think about. Christmas, whatever it is, from Thanksgiving all the way to New Year's, there's just this tension that arrives in the air. We're around family perhaps too much. We're a little bit on edge. There's all this reciprocity and gift giving and all these sorts of things. We we feel this tension. And things get brought up, perhaps. Memories get stirred up. Old feelings are felt new, as if we are feeling them for the first time. Things that we haven't thought about, we're bringing back up again with our families. (laughs) But I think all of that tension that we feel in, in this holiday season, so to speak, is there on purpose. Because just like Israel, ruin is the prelude to hope. Feeling devastated is the prelude to feeling hopeful. And until we recognize how bad things are, we are not ready to hear the good things. And this is what Israel is being told. You are poor and captive and brokenhearted. You have forgotten the former things. You are in ruins. And guess what? If Israel resisted that, they would be resistant of the very message that gave them hope. Scripture's hope of salvation is understood when we see salvation as absolutely necessary. When we see this hope as something that we cannot do without. That it's indispensable to our lifeblood that we have this salvation given to us. We won't come to that point until we see that we cannot do anything to repair ourselves, to save ourselves, to restore ourselves in any sort of way. See, this is what makes Christmas so important. 
Baby Jesus isn't just a nice tradition that we celebrate every December 25th. Baby Jesus is an absolute necessity that we could not do without. He had to come and save man from himself. And without that, we would be utterly lost. We would be utterly left in ruins and desolations. We would still be captive and blind and desolate and destitute. But, but God, he is the one who came into the midst of this desolation and gave those who were, yes, desolate, this hopeful message. This anointed one, the Lord has anointed me. He has come to find us. Find us in our ruin. Find us, yes, in the midst of all of these very bad things. This is what makes the message of Advent, at least to me, so incredibly profound. That if we pretend that we don't have any shortcomings that make this necessary, we will miss the message. In fact, uh, German Protestant theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, that the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul. Who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. This was Israel. (laughs) They were everywhere troubled by what they knew to be true. That this exile was self-inflicted and that they are here now and feeling the Lord's punishment. And yet the hope is that something greater is going to come. They couldn't help themselves. They needed outside help coming from outside of themselves. And this, my friends, is the gospel. This is the glad tidings that we have. That help has come. That there is a remedy. That there is hope to be found. And it's in this Lord's anointed one. He is the hope that we have. Hope that we're made aware of as we are aware of our own ruin. Is he necessary to you? This, I think, is Isaiah's point. Do you see him as absolutely necessary? Hope comes when we recognize the bad things. Number two, look at the Lord, what the Lord does here in this chapter. uh, Because number two is hope is established by establishing the new things. Establishing the new things. Look at verse three. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. This anointed one of God. The Messiah. He comes into this mournful state of affairs. And this one who was Israel's hope. He enters into this ruin. He comes on a mission. He comes to replace all of the things that they had been dealing with. To bring about their restoration. Notice this is the burden of the Lord's ministry. The Messiah's mission is one of restoration. And it's on his shoulders specifically. It's not what they could do to replace all of these things. It's the Messiah's mission. This is what he would do. The new things are what they are so longing for and what they could find hope in. And what are these new things? Well, again, look at verse 3. I love what it says here when it says that they may be called trees 
of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. This Messiah is going to replant his people. That's literally what that word plant means. It's a replanting of his people. It's suggestive that this nation of Israel will once again find their strength, find their sturdiness, not because of what they do, but again, it's because this Messiah would come and replant them like a deeply rooted tree with roots that extend far into the earth that make it able to withstand all kinds of heat and weather and changing of climates. This is what God would do for his nation. Plant them deep within himself. And say, I am fortifying you in my righteousness. Notice he says, they shall be called trees of righteousness. This is the Messiah's work. The Messiah's work for his people. That he settles them. He steadies them. He strengthens them. Those who are languishing in sorrow and in captivity and in desolation. He says, I'm going to replant you and make you sturdy and strong and settled because of me. There's a wonderful verse that harmonizes with this one over in Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 verse 8. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river. And will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will will be green. And will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. This is what God does for his people. He replants them so that nothing can move them. So they will be able to withstand all kinds of climates. This is what the Lord's work is. This Israel of this nation of Israel will no longer be displaced. For seven years, they've been displaced in a land that was not their own. And now he says, this is where you belong. I'm planting you in my righteousness. Notice number two, also here, as he says, another new work that the Lord is going to do. Look down at verse six. He says, but you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles and in their glory you shall boast. I love how this phrasing goes here in verse 6. Because not only is he going to replant this people, he's going to rename them. Notice he says, I will name you priests. They didn't have any integrity (laughs) Or qualities which should qualify them for this position. (laughs) They spent seven years in exile. They have turned their backs on the Lord countless times. They have nothing with which they could stand on to say we deserve this position. And yet what does God do? He says I am naming you this. This is the word and work of the Messiah. Which creates qualities that qualify them for the things that he wants them to do. (laughs) You are going to be in my service. I am naming you priests. It's done. It's created. (laughs) What he says is what is created in them. And guess what? This is the same is true for us. This is the work of Christ. When he declares us just. 
It's that big theological word justification that God has declared us that we are righteous by no merit of our own, by no standing or position or quality in and of ourselves. He says, you are righteous, not because of us, but because he names us so. He names us righteous because of what he has done and because of what his word can do. Despite all the evidence against us, he renames us. He replants us. And notice in verses 10 and 11 what he does to these people as he says in verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. He's going to redress his people. This nation of Israel... Who was living in exile for their punishment, for their infidelity. If you notice here in this chapter and also in that famous prophecy of Hosea. Is that image of an unfaithful spouse. That is used to indicate just the devastation that Israel has caused on the God who loves them like an adoring husband. And Israel's newfound glory here. It's found in almost this imagery of, of, of a renewal of vows. Notice as he says, as a, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, he's going to clothe them in the garments of salvation and in his robe of righteousness. This picture to me is so beautiful. Look down in verse 1 of chapter 62. The the next chapter. Isaiah continues. He says, For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. And her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness. And all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name. Which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married, for as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What a wonderful image is of this God that we have. That through the Lord's work, through the Messiah's hand and mission, he's going to reclaim his lost bride. And renew his vows with her. And rejoice over them. And not just rejoice over them. He is going to make sure everyone sees that he loves this nation. Notice as he says, everyone's going to see your righteousness. Verse 2 of 62. All kings your glory. They're going to see it. He's going to venerate these people because he loves them so dearly. These words are indicative of God's covenant with his people being firmly reestablished. 
His love firmly reconfirmed that, yes, despite all that has transpired, my faithfulness for you is still there. My faithfulness for you still goes on and on and on. It cannot be broken. It cannot waver. I'm going to redress you in my righteousness so that everyone can see my power. And notice, I love verse 1 of 62. Because the Lord is, these are not just words that that the Lord is saying through Isaiah. These are words that he is adamantly saying, and yes, that these are going to come true. Notice he says in verse 1, I will not hold my peace. I will not rest until this is accomplished. Until I'm able to remake this nation into what it is. Until I'm able to reclaim these people as my people. Until I'm able to restore them unto their former glory. This is what he promised to Israel. And guess what? This is what he promises to you and I too. You have a God who will not rest until he can make you what he wants you to be. He doesn't stop short. Because we're so faithless. He doesn't stop in his work on us because we are so lazy and tired and come up with excuses why we just cannot do the things of God. We have a God who doesn't rest until he chisels us and molds us into the people that we ought to be and fashions us into the creation that he wants us to be. You have a God who is not done working on you yet. It's a message of hope. He's not done working and establishing these new things in you and on you and for you. This God, he's not going to stop until this work is done. And this is our hope still. This is our hope that these things are being established. The new things are being established by this Lord, this Messiah, this anointed one. But lastly, number three. We have to recognize the bad things. We have to see the establishing of the new things. But notice number three, the reversing of all things. Because these bad things are being made to give way to these new things that the Lord is doing. But if you read the first seven verses especially. You'll see this, I think, this really captivating dimension of this one who is anointed by God. This Messiah's mission is namely one of reversal. Because notice, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Notice how every dreadful reality that Israel was aware of, how Israel had been living with, is entirely reversed by this one who comes with the Lord's anointing. Notice, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities. The desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. And the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. 
but you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in the glory, their glory, you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. (laughs) All of these horrible, dreadful, miserable realities are reversed by this one who comes and says, I am the Lord's anointed. The poor are bound up by this, are built up by this good news. The brokenhearted are mended. The captives are given their liberty. The mourners are comforted and consoled by this one in their mourning. And the ruins are repaired and rebuilt and remade. Every misery is reversed. This is what Jesus does, my friends. This is the mission of the Messiah who comes to reverse every evil of sin. Notice chapter 62, verse 4. We read it. He says, you shall no longer be termed forsaken. Your land shall no longer be termed desolate. He's going to make it fruitful. He's going to restore it fully. Everything was going to be remade. Notice chapter 58, verse 12. Notice what he names this one. He says, those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called repairer of the breach. The restorer of streets to dwell in. This is our Lord. All of this glory that had been lost is going to be restored. All of these ruins are going to be remade. And what is catastrophic is, is reversed into something joyous. As it says in 61 verse uh, 7, everlasting joy shall be theirs. This is what Jesus does. What the gospel announces. He's reversing the catastrophe of sin. One Presbyterian minister, he says it this way, that the gospel is the instrument by which the condition is reversed, by which the whole evil of the fall is repaired, by which the power of a seducing world is entirely broken and the soul reunited in its ancient bonds to her true husband. How this perfectly speaks to this message. The gospel of the Messiah's coming is the instrument by which all of these conditions that we have grown too comfortable with, all of the sin and misery and heartache is entirely reversed by this one coming to us. And not just be coming to us. How does this one do this? He comes and he becomes sin and he puts sin to death. He does it in such a surprising way. All of this catastrophe is reversed. When I was studying this, I couldn't help but think of this word. And to use this word, I have to explain where this word comes from. (laughs) Which makes me have the joyous occasion of sharing a little bit about J.R.R. Tolkien. (laughs) If you know me, I love Tolkien's works. He wrote The Lord of the Rings, which is a really famous uh, fantasy series of novels. But he was also very more well-known over in England for his work in language. And he was a linguist, which is much of where his, his writing into the fantasy world comes from, his love of languages. 
In one of his essays, he was sort of, uh, it's an essay that doesn't have to do with the Lord of the Rings, actually. I've been reading some of his other stuff. It's called On Fairy Stories. And essentially what he's doing is trying to uh, propose a defense for why he writes, quote, fairy tales. What's, what's the merit of them? Why do we have stories like this? And he coins this wonderful term called the eucatastrophe. Listen to what he says. He says, the eucatastrophic tale is the true form of fairy tale. And in its highest function, the consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or it's more correctly defined, the good catastrophe, which is the sudden joyous turn from bad to good. It is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. The possibilities of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world. And what he's saying, therefore, is that the happily ever after, it is this catastrophe. A sudden turn from bad to good, which brings us this miraculous grace as he defines it. Which is, I think, a very good way to view the gospel that we have. That the hope of scripture itself is a sudden and miraculous grace that reverses the catastrophe of Genesis 3. That sees that ruinous fall and actually is not a sudden turn from good to bad in which it was. But now Jesus the Messiah, he comes in and brings a sudden turn from bad to good. And actually not just bad to good, from bad to holy. This is the Messiah. And Tolkien himself, he was very religious. He says this, he goes on in the same essay. The Gospels contain a fairy story or a story of a larger kind, which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete eucatastrophe. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. And this story begins and ends in joy. I love those words. Because they remind me of just how incredibly marvelous it is that we get to celebrate this eucatastrophe of the Lord's incarnation. That in this desolation that we have, this catastrophe of sin that we have in our hearts, is met by this sudden and miraculous grace of Jesus The Lord's anointed coming down to us. No one could have counted on this solution. No one would have ever thought of that the the solution to our ruin is that God himself would come down and take on our ruin. And this is the good news. This is the glad tidings. the, the, The good tidings of great joy which shall be for all people. As the angel says. It's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That this, this God comes to our world of sin and wretchedness and ruin and turns it into joy. Turns it into everlasting joy. This is what we're celebrating. This this sudden turn 
from ruin to hope. This is the work of Jesus, your Messiah. Let us pray.